When the Holy Spirit inspired John to write the final book in the Bible, the intent was to disclose a divine secret. Revelation, we're learning, contains the unveiling of God's timetable for the future. And until the day Revelation was written, it did remain a closely held secret. Hi, I'm Clayton Bjell, and today on Insight for Living, Chuck Swindell invites us to engage in this fascinating revelation as the story unfolds just as God planned it. Today we're looking at John's opening chapter in which he alludes to words of prophecy. Chuck titled this message, Prelude to the Unveiling. Remember last time we learned that revelation means unveiling, the disclosing of something that has once been secret or covered over, That's the way the first verse reads. It is the unveiling of Jesus Christ, watch closely, which God, that's the original source of the information, gave him, referring to Jesus, so we have the Father giving to the Son this truth, and the Son is to show to his bondservants, that would be those who are yielded to his will, sensitive to his truth, And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. So it came from God through Christ by means of an angel to John and then from John in written form to us. The purpose of it, as you saw in verse 1, is to show the things which must soon take place. Well, what happens to those who receive this information? Verse 3 tells us of the blessing. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. We who read the book will be blessed. When you read the book of the Revelation, the chaos may break loose around you, but you will not be panicked. You will not be confused. You will understand that events are unfolding just as God planned them. Notice the blessing is for those who read, those who hear, and those who heed. So we have the purpose of the book in verses 1 and 2. We have the blessing that comes from the book in verse 3. Then we get to the greeting when we get down to verse 4. John immediately takes up the stylus and begins to write. And he says, to the seven churches that are in Asia. There were more than seven churches in the first century. But these churches were chosen because they represented the characteristics of churches of any age. First century all the way through the 21st and however long the Lord may tarry. So these churches addressed in chapters 2 and 3 will talk about events that happen in our own church or could happen. Or warnings to guard against what might happen. Because they are indicative of them or representative of those things, these seven were chosen. Look at the greeting. It's an ancient greeting. Grace to you and peace. Grace is what God does for us which we do not deserve. And which we cannot earn and are unable to repay. It is divine unmerited favor. The children of God who have come to Christ 
by means of believing in the Lord Jesus, who died for us on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins, we receive God's matchless grace. The result of receiving his grace is an inner sense of peace and a tranquility. We who know Christ and are going to be informed from the book of the Revelation are, are, are going to gain a peace that will not come from the current events or from reporters who report about those events. These things come from the Lord himself. In fact, the triune God. You see the way it unfolds? Look back at verse 4. Grace to you and peace. First, it's from the Father. Him who is, who was, and who is to come. Isn't that a wonderful way to express it? First of all, he is the one who is. He lives in this ever-present now of our lives. But he also is the one who was before there was time. The Father's plan has been unfolding ever since, right up to this time where he is. And he says, from him who is to come, the one yet to reveal more of his will in the future, even beyond the point of time. Get this. The book of Revelation will take us to the end of time and beyond. Now, it's, it's tough to reckon that because everything in our mind is shaped by the boundaries of time. But with God, it's one massive panorama. One of my mentors, Ray Stedman, used to love to tell one of his theories about eternity. I'll never forget it. He said, I'm convinced when we step out of time and into eternity, everything will be revealed in one entire panorama. We will see the past. We will see the present. We will see the future perfectly unfolded exactly as the Father planned it. And it will all work together for good to those who love God and it will be for the glory of the one who planned it. You'll see it all. You'll see what once was. You'll see what is now or was at the time of death. And you'll see what surpasses it or outlives it. And it will go on and on and on. You'll see it all in one great panorama. He's the one who is, who was, and is to come. The Spirit is set forth as the seven spirits who are before his throne. We'll get further into this idea later, but this seems to be the best reference to, or at least one of the references to the Holy Spirit. Some have said it refers to the seven ministries of the Spirit. Others have said these are seven angels who surround the Spirit. Whatever, I think the capital S is correct. I believe this is a reference to the one who is the complete Spirit. Him in all of his fullness, the truth of grace and peace come from him and also from Jesus Christ. And it's upon that name John stays for the next couple of verses. Look at what he says about Christ. Three things. And here he, he paints a portrait of, of uh, our glorious Savior. He is the faithful witness. He is the firstborn of the dead a reference to his preeminence among those who were raised from the dead. And I love the last one. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Often they don't know that. 
I always try to remind myself when I see some strutting monarch that he'll strut only so long. He has a ruler whether he knows he is the pawn of that ruler or not. Proverbs 21.1 says the Lord is able to move the heart of the kings like channels of water. Why? Because he is the, he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. We all live under the mighty hand of God, regardless of rank, prestige, unknowns and blue bloods alike. We all live under the mighty hand of the ruler of the earth. He is called here the ruler of the kings of the earth. Well, John can't take much more, so he decides it's time for a benediction. And he begins it with the words, to him. He's talked about Christ as, as the faithful witness and the firstborn, preeminent one from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And he says, to him, to him who loves us, that's continually loves us, constantly, incessantly loves us. Then he goes back to the cross and released us from our sins by his blood. Little interesting tidbit that interests me, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna hope it interests you. There is a, a, there is an old translation that says to him who loves us and washed us from our sins. It gave rise to the great old gospel song, "Are you washed? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb?" Remember singing that, Southern Baptist Church probably it. It's a, it's, a, it's a beloved song, and I sang it all through my childhood. I uh, used to stand next to a guy that put his hand in his pocket. Are you washed? I mean, he really, he was, it was washed instead of washed. And, uh, anyway, why would it say washed or washed? Why would it say that instead of released? In the Greek, there is only a difference of one letter between the word translated release and the word translated washed. It's possible that some scribe in writing the uh, manuscript added that word and it came to be known as washed. But in the oldest manuscripts, that, that, that letter is, is not there and it means released. Washed would be fine, but released is the more reliable of the translations. And, and I love it because it takes us back to the cross. He keeps on loving us. And he at one point in time released us. The loving us is a present tense. The released is a tense that refers to point of time. And on the cross, he released us from our sins. Isn't that a great thought? Once and one time only does the Savior pay for the sins of the world. There is no need for a continual observing of the Mass. Where Christ is brought back to the place of death. There's no reason to place him on a cross and to hang a crucifix with Christ in his body on the cross. He's gone from the cross. He once for all released us from our sins by his blood. And notice it says he has made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. And then John adds to him, that's where he started, to him be the glory. The word is doxa. We get our word doxology from this word translated glory. To him be the doxa and the dominion. He's back to this thought of being the ruler. The dominion forever and ever. 
amen. He adds that amen, and it means I believe it. I believe it. John then turns to the future scene of the coming king. And he starts with a word that means look. Look. It's a word that arrests our attention. He grabs our attention with the word stop, look. I think at this moment in the vision, John saw the coming of the Savior. Remember my comment about Stedman's theory regarding the future or regarding eternity? John is caught up in this scene and he sees it all. And as he looks across the peaks of the events yet coming, yet to come, he sees the coming Christ and he, he announces, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Then he makes a statement, Every eye will see him. Every eye, every person living on the earth will see him. Uh, it's a remarkable thought. Uh, how could people on the other side of the world see what is seen on this side? How do you do that? Well, I don't know. How's that for an answer? What does it mean? It means just what it says. Somehow, in God's amazing plan... There will be this arrival of the Son of God coming in judgment on this earth to win that final battle of Armageddon and every eye will see him as he returns, even those who do not believe in him. He describes them as those who pierced him and the tribes of the earth. Please observe, there will not be applause. There will be mourning. Why? Because he's coming as the judge. When he first came, we applauded. Well, we, I believe if we had known him, we would have applauded. If we had anticipated Messiah coming as Savior, we would have loved to see him in his arrival, though he came in humiliation. This time, he comes. To judge. And uh, opportunity for change will be gone. As he comes as the final judge and the earth mourns seeing him. Look how John ends this. So it is to be. That's the translation of one little tiny Greek word which means yes. I love that. He comes to the end of this initial vision and he says, yes, amen. Sounds like a preacher, doesn't it? One great yes to what he has revealed. But then he adds, well, he doesn't. The Lord himself does. John, I am the alpha. First letter of the Greek alphabet. I am the omega. Last letter we would say, I am the A to Z. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. It is a, uh, it is a sobering thought 
when you let it say what it says, isn't it? Sobering. Uh, This isn't uh, John's passing fancy as he imagines a lot of neat things that might happen. John has been lifted to another plane of, of, of realization and revelation and and he's recording, he's writing as fast as he can, and, and it's only starting. Really, the, the curtain will not be drawn until this great vision that follows, beginning at verse 9, that's next time. But right now, he's come to the really the theme of the book, which is verse 7. He is coming, and every eye will see him. The events that are unfolding on planet Earth seem at times maddening confusing Uh, and because they are to us uh, it's a common practice for us to think of God as sort of sitting on the edge of heaven dangling his legs and going what am I going to look at what Turkey has decided I can't believe it no no it's not like that God isn't saying, help, Gabriel, Michael, come on. Nothing is an afterthought with God. Everything with God is a forethought. Everything. Nothing surprises him. Nothing shocks him. Nothing panics him. Nothing informs him. It is unfolding exactly as it's planned. That's why he announces that he's the one who was and is and is to come. The Almighty. Meaning in charge. I was there at the beginning. I'll be there at the ending. And I am there at this very moment. Now what does all this have to say to to us? Let me give you some thoughts here. First, the triune God is preeminent, deserving of our praise. If John can see what he saw and pause to give praise, so must we. We praise the Father, and we praise the Son, and we praise the Spirit, three in one. We praise the triune God, just as John did. I I notice also that the two categories of humanity stand in sharp contrast. There are those who anticipate this hour with delight, and then there are those who mourn this hour. And by the way, what a contrast between the first and the second coming. At the first coming, judgment on sin was taken care of at the cross. And those who believe know that freedom, that release from sin. The second coming, the judgment is ahead for those who do not believe. At the first coming, there was humiliation and and there was humility and servant hearted leadership and there was obscurity at the second coming every eye will see him and the world will know it's over what does it mean then it means that your judgment is either behind you or in front of you your judgment has been taken care of at the cross where you believed or it is in front of you at the judgment when he returns and I'll tell you Either we are comforted by that thought or it's terrifying because the hour 
has never been later than now. I read this past week of an older couple who had been married for many years and their small belongings, there were few, but one of their prized possessions was an old grandfather clock that had been passed down through generations and they had enjoyed its chimes for all of their marriage. And late one evening, they retired for bed. And shortly after they laid out, the chimes began to sound. 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 13 o'clock, 14, and finally 15 chimes. And the old man sat up in bed and he said, honey. What time is it? She sat up by him and leaned over and said, I don't know, but it's later than it's ever been before. <laughs> funny little story, but it won't be funny then. I, I uh, am not playing on your emotions, and I don't believe in doing that. But I, I plead with you urgently not to put off your relationship with Christ, thinking that you've got it all planned out and when it's convenient, you'll, you'll come around. There isn't a second chance. It's now. Let's bow together. Will you close your eyes? Let nothing interrupt these thoughts. If there has never been a time in your life when you have personally received the gift of eternal life in Christ, now is the best time you'll ever have. You're alive, you're well, you're able to hear it. The opportunity is before you. Plus, you're on the verge of seeing truths from a book open up before you that will make your mouth drop open. And you'll understand it. And it will bring for you not terror, but a relief knowing that it will not strike you. You see, God's people are preserved from such tribulation as the Lord plans for this earth. But if you don't know the Savior, you'll be in the midst of it. Trust Him now. Let's pause in just a moment of silence as we meditate upon our Savior's sacrifice. Our times move rapidly on. The cares of the age, the noise, the pace. It's good that we stand and sit in his presence. And we give him our thanks. Our Father, we are very grateful. Throughout our lives, we are grateful for the sacrifice that your Son exhibited and modeled and paid on unworthy people like us. Meet with us in a special way as we lay our sins before you, as we receive the cleansing that comes from your blood. And as we meditate upon the Savior's epical sacrifice on our behalf. How grateful we are that 
we are continually loved, having been released from our sins. May we linger in the joy of moments like this as the week unfolds. May we call to mind often that our times are in your hands. Yes, our times are in God's hands. And that's a relief, given the turmoil that we do see around our world. You're listening to Insight for Living with Bible teacher Chuck Swindoll. We've just begun a study in the last book of the Bible, Revelation, and Chuck has titled this series, Unveiling the End. Many of us are alarmed about the global chaos of our times. We see the tension in the Middle East and the egregious crimes, and we wonder if the end is near. Well, Chuck believes that there's no better place to go for answers than the book of Revelation. To help you make the most of this study, Insight for Living provides a variety of helpful resources. For example, did you realize that Chuck has written a commentary on Revelation? Now, don't let the word commentary scare you. This book isn't solely academic. In typical Swindoll fashion, Chuck Swindoll's Living Insights on Revelation is written in narrative form. It is practical, it's enlightening, and it's a book that I'm sure you'll be referring to for many years to come. To request a copy, head to ifl.org.au. And do remember that Insight for Living provides online study notes for you as well. We call this feature Searching the Scriptures. It's interactive, meaning that you can just jot your notes straight into the online document, or feel free to download the PDF and even share it with your study group. You can access the Searching the Scriptures study notes right now by heading to ifl.org.au. I'm Clayton Gellin, inviting you to join us when Chuck Swindoll continues his study in Revelation called Unveiling the End, Friday on Insight for Living. Mm-hmm.